Hey, good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, this is your first time here. My name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to personally welcome you uh, to here at Redemption Church. A little bit about redemption. We are one church with multiple congregations. Uh, we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and so we seek to make disciples in response to that truth. Uh, the best way that we do this is a thing called redemption communities. It's the heartbeat of what we do. Uh, redemption communities are smaller gathering of people that meet in various places and neighborhoods throughout Tempe, as well as surrounding cities to uh, encourage one another and the Lord to eat with one another, to hang out with one another, to have fellowship with one another. If this is something that you're interested in, uh, we highly recommend it and, and encourage you to be a part of it. Uh, best thing that you can do is take that information card that's in the seat in front of you, uh, fill out your name, email address, and just mark the box and run Redemption Communities. Uh, you can drop it off in the offering boxes, which are located in the back by the doors, and you can do this during our time of response. Uh, a few announcements that I have. First is we are having a membership class. If you can remember a few weeks ago, I talked about how we were trying to get more people exposed to our membership class so you can make the decision if you want to be a member here at Redemption Tempe. Now, taking the class doesn't make you a member. You don't have to become a member if you take the class. But I think taking the class would be helpful for you for a few reasons. One, you get an opportunity to hear from your elders, me and the rest of our team. Um, you can hear the philosophy, the theology, and the doctrine of our church um, in, a, in, a, in a smaller setting outside of a Sunday service. And so we expect to have our biggest class. We hope to have you, you all there. Um, and that's going to be the last Wednesday of this month. That's November 28th. And the first Wednesday of December, which is December 5th. Again, the last Wednesday of November and the first Wednesday of December, 6.30 to 8. Uh, you can register for that online at redemptionaz.com. Uh, second announcement that I have is that we are having baby dedications and baptisms, which I'm looking forward to. Um, our most exciting days here on, on Sundays is when we celebrate new life um, of, a, of a baby and new life of a believer. And uh, we usually do those in separate days, but we're going to combine it together. And so it's going to be a lot of fun and probably a lot of people here. And so um, if you have a baby that you want to dedicate um, or you want to be baptized and you want information on that, um, you too can just take that information card and uh, fill out your name, email address. And, and put, I want information for baptism or I want information for baby dedications. You can drop it off at the Connect Desk or go ahead and drop it off in the offering boxes and somebody will be able to get back to you. Uh, that's all I have for our time of announcements. Would you take out your Bibles and meet me in First Peter chapter 3? We're going to begin in verse 18. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the guys will be able to get you a copy uh, of the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we give you. It is uh, our gift to you so that you can have a copy of, of God's Word. Um, it is good to be back in the pulpit, be, be able to preach to you guys again. I've only been gone teaching for two weeks, but it feels like I've been gone for, for longer than that. Um, I'm even more excited because, um, you know, the Sun Devils finally won again. And so that's exciting. For, there, for a while there, I was telling my wife, I'm questioning my call because they wanted me to be the chaplain. We haven't won a game in three years, it seems like. And it feels like God is not with me anymore. So, but... He's back. So we're excited about that. Um, this upcoming week, I know it's important because it's Thanksgiving for most of us. Um, for ASU fans, the most important thing about this week is that we go down to Tucson to try to beat the Wildcats, which uh, I'm pretty nervous about that, right? I'm just being honest with you. So hopefully the Lord is with us again because clearly God is on the side of the devil, right? So pray for us. <laughs> First Peter chapter 3. Um, this text in itself, this passage, is easily the most confusing passage in all of First Peter, and one of the most confusing passages in all of the Bible. In fact, Martin Luther, who um, is, is dogmatic about everything, the great reformer, he said about this particular passage that it is the most confusing, the most difficult, and that after study, he himself doesn't really know what Peter's saying. 
So here we go. All right, we're gonna try to figure. We're gonna try to figure it out. Um, what I would say is, as confusing as it is, and it is a confusing text, it, the the point is not confusing. So, so here's the point here. Last week, um, Jim came and did a great job in, in talking about blessings. So essentially, how Christians are to respond well to suffering. And, and so part one last week was we are to be a blessing to people and bless others. And many people will be one to faith because of how we serve them, how we bless them in our occupations, in our neighborhoods, and in the parks, and in our communities. Um, we too now, is how we respond, is it's far more about obedience. And so it's the other side of the coin. And on one side, last week, we, we learned as we bless people that people will be drawn to the truth of the gospel by our actions. And then now what Peter is saying is now as you suffer well by obedience, that, 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 that's not going to be the case. That sometimes people will actually not like you. Sometimes you will be rejected because of your obedience. Um, because of your, your, your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and because of your obedience, that, that people will reject you. And Peter is saying that. Um, it's important for us to understand that because as Americans, we don't think that bad things should happen to good people or bad things should not happen to people who do what's right. That, that's just as who we are as Americans. And, and as Christians, even though we say that we are saved by grace, that is God's undeserved gift in Christ Jesus, of, of which he laid down his life for us and we did nothing for, but we receive all the benefits. We understand grace. And yet the way we function is we function out of karma. That, you know, our good deeds, if they outweigh our bad deeds, then good things should happen to us. And that's not the case. What Peter is arguing here is that if you do good, if you obey, if you do what's right, things won't always go your way. When my wife and I first got married, we, um, we got married, went on our honeymoon, and neither one of us had jobs. And so the whole time on our honeymoon, we were, um, you know, trying to get jobs and calling back and trying to get jobs. And finally, I landed what I thought was going to be the job of my life. Um, this guy that I knew said, hey, you can get this job. It was very lucrative. I don't even know how they even um, got my name because my friend said, you're qualified for this. And I said, sure, whatever, I'll, I'll take it, right? And so I walked all the way through the interviews, the interviews. I got to the final test, and they make you take this test. Um, and in it, you answer tons of questions that seem to make no sense. And afterwards, the boss came to me, and, and he says, hey, you, you did really good on all your interviews, and we want to hire you, but you failed this test. I'm like, well, how do you fail the test? It was all opinions and what you thought. And he goes, because we're looking for a certain person. He goes, and for instance, your answer here says that do, does money drive you? And you put no. Um, he goes, this is a very lucrative job. And he goes, the way it works is you make money and I need people who are driven to make more money that won't get comfortable with a certain salary because the more money they make, the more money I make. And so I need people who that money drives them. And you tell me that money doesn't drive you. And I said, it doesn't, but trust me, I will work hard. I, I just don't want to change that answer. I was a young Christian and I wanted to do the right thing. And so I told him, yeah, I'll, and he says, you know what? Since money doesn't drive you, um, you won't get the job. And I said, no, 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 money drives me. What did, what did you think I said? No, I said, money does drive me, right? I need this job, right? And I, I, I didn't get the job. And, you know, it was fine. It was, it was one of those things where, you know, I, I felt, oh, I did the right thing. And, and I was being honest, but, but I didn't get it. I did the right thing. This, this happens in even little ways. When you decide to live for the Lord, when you just try to look at the scriptures and say, God, I just want to obey you. Even in the little things, like telling the truth. Sometimes telling you the truth socially will get you in trouble. It will. Even though you're honest and you're doing what God's called you to do, it'll get you in trouble. Let's just say, for example, your wife comes home and there's a, a dress that she bought and you see the bag and you go, oh my gosh, that might be the ugliest dress I've ever seen. And then she puts it on and she comes out and she goes, hey baby, and you go, what's up? And, and then she says, does this look good on me? And you go, no. 
right? That's just, that's not going to go well for you. You could say yes, but you'd be lying. You'd probably say yes, but you'd be lying, right? You'd be lying in that moment. That, that happens all the time. When, see, when, when Holly and I were dating, we, we, um, when anyone dates, you're not giving yourself the real person. You're giving the person that that person wants to date, right? You're just kind of saying, here's who I kind of am, right? And then you get married and you go, bam, here I am, right? This is everything of who you are. Um, and so you don't, you don't criticize them. You don't say things like the way that they dress. And so once Holly and I got married, we both went to each other's closets. And I shared this with you before. And, and one of the things that um, I did is I went to her closet and I said, hey, you see these overalls? Yeah. No. Um, some people can wear overalls. Some of you that are wearing overalls right now, wow, you look great in those overalls. But for my wife, I was just like, no, we're not going to wear these overalls. We are, we, we are grown people. We're not wearing these, uh, these overalls. And I said, can we get rid of this? And she goes, yeah. And then she walked over to my closet and she goes, okay, you see this shirt? I had this awesome shirt, I thought. Um, and and um, she goes, yeah, this shirt. And I said, what's wrong with that shirt? She goes, there's a big rhino on it. And I said, hey, what's wrong with that shirt, right? And she goes, grown men shouldn't wear animals on their shirt. I was like, whatever, I'm safe. So there, there was this, there was a, there, there's a sense there was like, we said, okay, let's be honest. This happens when we go to eat at people's house. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up. And, and because of our church, there's a lot of people who this is not their home or there's not family members here. So you will probably travel to somebody else's house. You will probably travel to that particular girl, that particular guy's parents' house. And, and their mom, they're going to they're gonna lay it out there. And you're going to look at it and you're going to go, uh-oh. Right? Uh, my my uh, sophomore year in college, I was here and my family was gone and I didn't know where I was going to eat Thanksgiving and I was student teaching at a school and um, the teacher said, hey, why don't you come to my house? My, me and my husband, we're going to be cooking. It's going to be great. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I showed up to their house because I love to eat and I was prepared to eat and the food looked good. I mean, it looked great. As soon as I bit into that food, guys, I kid you not, it was the worst food that I'd ever had. And I'm sitting there, I, I and you don't want to let them know, so you're like, mmm, this is terrible, right? And you're just trying to have some good food there. And then she said the thing you don't want her to say, hey, isn't it good to have good home cooking food? And I thought, oh, I can get away with this one. Yes. Just, just not, not here, right? You know, she could get there. The little things like that. When you do just the right thing, um, that, that sometimes things won't go your way. Um, what Peter is talking about to his original context here is that the suffering that they were experiencing, it was not physical suffering. It was suffering socially, meaning there was, there was some rejection happening here. They were seen as an odd group of people because of what they believed. I mean, just think about it. Um, they were known as people who believed in incest because they called each other's brothers and sisters. Um, they were known as people that were um, cannibalists in the sense that they said that they ate the body of Jesus and they drank his blood. Um, they were an awkward group of people to the social culture around them them. And so by being obedient, there would have brought, that would have brought some, some persecution or the best way to be suffering in this way socially. And so Peter begins to describe how they can live in that, how to maintain obedience, how we can o- maintain obedience over a long period of time in spite of suffering that we may bring glory to the Lord. And so the point of the text here is Peter is encouraging his readers to remember Jesus, to, to have a good memory. And the way that I, that I think this helps for us is to think about it, how we are to live in a culture that does not fully understand Christ, does not worship Christ, is to think of it in what I would call the, like animals and animals of faith. And, and here's why. Uh, animals is useless, but it helps for my illustration here. Um, there's such a thing what I call as chameleon faith. And you know what a chameleon is? The strength of a chameleon is no matter what grouping they're in, um, they can go to anywhere and just fit in. 
just fine. That's an attribute that they have as an animal that is, is, is great. Um, however, no matter where they are, they blend in. They just become that environment. There are some of us, that is what our faith is like as Christians. We are social. We can be around people who do not love Jesus. We can be around people at work, and our neighborhood, our friends and family, and they love us. And yet we never display at all the character or the person and the work of Christ. That there's, there's not much in us that is displaying of who we believe. There's this one true Lord and Savior in Jesus. And so we turn off our faith. Um, and then there's the, the Chihuahua faith. And, and if you guys know anything about a Chihuahua, they're, the, they're, they're just annoying, right? But because... God loves dogs. I don't, but God loves dogs. Um, chihuahuas have a purpose in this world. One, but they have a purpose in this world. Some of you have chihuahuas, know something about chihuahuas. They're loyal. Um, they're, if you study chihuahuas, not that I've studied chihuahuas, but I did read, read, read Wikipedia, so that counts, right? Chihuahuas are loyal to their owners. They're, they're clannish. When they're around their owners, they, they get protective. They bark. They, 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 they bark a lot, like a, a lot, right? And that's what, that's what they do. They're just annoying. However, if you take those chihuahuas and they're away from their owners, they're, they're kind of sheepish. And some of us have faith like that. That when we're in Christian circles, we're in our little Christian ghettos, we're excited for Christ, we're bold for Christ, we wear t-shirts that say, I'm for Christ. Um, we have bracelets and necklaces, we send out text verses all the time, um, the, the verse of the day, we Facebook it. We're just really bold for saying, hey, we're going to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet we only do that around other Christians. We don't, we don't do that around the people around us that do not believe in Jesus. We become sheepish. And, and Peter says, no, no, no. The, the way that you live is not by just fitting in, not having the faith like a chameleon. And, and it's not just by only being bold around those who believe, but it's by living in the middle of the context of the culture. And the way that we will grow in our obedience in spite of suffering is by remembering. That, 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 that remembering. And so the animal that I put for that is an elephant. Because the great attribute of an, of an elephant, though it's strong, the elephant's ability to move and go to different places because the elephant has a great memory. When you read through the Bible, and especially when you read through 1 Peter, what Peter is doing is constantly asking us to remember. For first first chap, chapter 1, he talks about that there's going to be trials, and then he points us back to Jesus. And then in chapter 2, he talks about how we should be holy people and how there's going to be conflict with that. And then he points us back to Jesus. And now in chapter 3, beginning about suffering here, he points us back to Jesus. He's saying, remember this, you can't forget this. The only way that you'll be able to live this life in long obedience, not just in moments, but being obedient people, is by remembering Christ. And so there's three things that we see as Peter encourages, encourages this audience, encourages us about three things we should remember when it comes to obedience and suffering. One is remember the sufferings of Christ. Remember the patience of Christ and remember the grace of Christ. The suffering, the patience, and the grace. Read with me, verse 18, chapter 3. The sufferings of Christ. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Um, verse 18 says this, for Christ suffered, once for the sins. What Peter does is now is giving us an example, an example of suffering, because he's talking to people that are suffering for doing good. Um, the beginning of verse 18, there's a word that says for. For is a connecting word. I mean, it's connecting it to what the author had just previously said. Verse 17 is what we see Peter is talking about. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Meaning, sometimes, 
It is God's will, his desire. Either he causes or actively allows for suffering to come in your life. Now, I want to just talk about the type of sufferings that Peter is talking about so that we're on the same page here. Um, There's buckets of sufferings. Um, One, there's sufferings that we have because of consequences of our own personal sin. That we all just, we decide and choose to make decisions and we sin against God. And oftentimes there are consequences for that. There's physical consequences, there's financial consequences, there's emotional consequences, there's consequences. Um, That's not what he's talking about. There's also, there's suffering that we have because of other people's sin. Um, The family that we grow grow up in, the people that we find ourselves around, that someone sins against us and we are receiving a bit of suffering because of their sin. That's not what he's talking about. And then there's just general suffering. Because this world is broken, because Christ has not come and fully redeemed, um, that there's hurricanes and there's earthquakes and there's death and there's murder and there's decay, that we all suffer whether we believe in God or not. And then there's the suffering Peter's talking about. And this suffering you can choose. Because this type of suffering comes by you willingly in response to Jesus obeying. Um, This is the type of suffering that Peter's audience were having. That they, they, were, they were a small minority group of people, meaning there weren't a lot of Christians around them. And people were looking at them awkward. And so Peter now says, this is how you should suffer. Jesus suffered. Look to Jesus. Remember his suffering. He's the perfect example. That he knows what it's like to be good. He knows what it's like to be obedient. Jesus' his words is, I can, only see what I, I can only do what I see my father doing. That, that certainly... In Jesus' life, there were were moments where um, in doing good, people were drawn to him. But for the most part, Jesus, obediently submitting to the lordship and authority of his father, that that he was persecuted. Ultimately, Jesus was murdered. Jesus was killed. Jesus was lynched. And, and, And Peter is saying, this is who we follow. Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have tribulation. So, So Christians, those of you in this room who would say you believe in Jesus, don't be surprised when we suffer. Don't, don't be surprised that obedience in itself sometimes will bring just a social rejection. Here's why. We follow the biggest reject of the world. G- Jesus Christ was socially rejected. He was physically rejected. In this, in this life, his family rejected. The author of this letter, Peter, Peter denied Jesus three times. Um, Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. I, I just think that sometimes, especially among young Christians, younger Christians, there is a thought that I want to believe in Jesus, but only if I could be cool still. I want to believe in Jesus as long as I'm not churchy or nerdy. I, I want to believe in Jesus, but I don't want to give up some of the things that kind of my ethos. I, want, I, I don't want to give up the things that make me and, and it becomes a, a cool thing. One of the things I don't like hearing from people who come to our church, who don't go to our church, is go, oh yeah, you're Redemption Tempe, you guys are the cool people, huh? It's like, no, I want to be known as the godly people. Uh, when, when Luke Simmons, <laughs> when Luke Simmons came and taught here a few weeks ago, Luke Simmons is the uh, lead pastor at Gateway, one of the things he kept saying, he was railing on us, we were not, we're not nice, you know, we shouldn't say hello. He's never come back here again, so don't worry about that. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's one of the things, he goes, Redemption Tempe, you're just so cool. And I told him afterwards, I'm like, dude, it's not that we're cool, I've been the Gateway. You guys just aren't. I mean, it's not, that's just, that's just, that's just, that's neither here nor there. But that's the point of that. It's, it's, we, we should not be people trying to fit in, should be trying to fit in. We should be people, first and foremost, that have a view and an understanding of the suffering of Christ and realizing that his suffering is an example and a means of following as a discipler um, and someone who is being discipled, following the pattern of Jesus. And so Peter puts it, remember his suffering. But Jesus' suffering was not only an example. But Jesus' suffering was the power 
Jesus' suffering was the motivation. Jesus' suffering is the means of our obedience and what draws us near to God. Read with me again in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The language there for once for sins, meaning that is a one-time act that has happened, that there is no more need, it, 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 there's no more need for continual actions like it. Um, meaning because Christ suffered on the cross and his blood was shed, there is no more sacrifice that people need to be made acceptable before God. Now, this is good news because if you understand the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, is literally people would sacrifice animals. Millions of animals were sacrificed. Because what they knew was because of sin, someone had to die. Either we had to die or we needed a substitute. And for them, the substitute was an animal. And what the priest would do is the priest would slaughter an animal to, to represent the suffering of someone on behalf of the people's sin. And and oftentimes, the priest would go into the temple and go into the most holy places of the temple. Um, And he would have to bring blood for the people that he was representing as well as blood for himself and to offer up for his sins. But when Jesus went to the cross, that particular curtain in the temple, it ripped. It was a a symbol saying that there no more needed to be sacrifices over and over and over again to God. That there had no, no longer that we have to sacrifice. Hear me on this. Jesus Christ, he died once for sin, meaning he forgave our sins, past, present, and future. Peter says here, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous, the one who's the singular, meaning one person, the God man, Jesus Christ, he gave his life for the righteous, plural, for the many who would believe in him. That there's, no, there's nothing we can do now to earn our acceptance before the Lord. And we don't need to because Christ has already done that. But this is hard for us to grasp when we see the suffering of Christ. This is hard for me to grasp. In my walk with the Lord, the thing that I've always struggled with is I understand up until this point before I was a Christian that God forgives me. It's now that I know that I'm saved. It's now that I know that I have the Holy Spirit. And these sins that used to be over here find themselves over here. And now that I know better, it is hard for me to think sometimes that God forgives me. And I know some of us are like that. And so what we try to do is read more, pray more, do something else to say, God, God, can can you see me? And a lot of times our reading and a lot of times our praying is not just to have access to God that we have, is that we were trying to earn something. We were trying to sacrifice. We were trying to, to have a penance. There need, there's no more penance. On the cross, Jesus took every single thing that was meant for us. You see, the enemy of Peter's audience and our enemy in itself was not the fact that we were going to lose friends. It wasn't the fact that we were going to be rejected. Our enemy was not so much physical. Our enemy was spiritual. Some of you are going to say, oh yeah, Satan. No, our biggest enemy was God. Our biggest enemy was Jesus. Uh, Born into this world by nature and by birth, every single one of us have the wrath of God hanging over us. And there's nothing that we can do to remove that wrath. That we are at odds with God. The Bible says that we are at enmity, that we don't like him. That our nature, our disposition, our being is at odds with who God is. And yet God in his infinite love and grace and mercy for us sent Jesus Christ to, to bear on in his body the sins of every single person who would believe. That he would satisfy the wrath of God. So now that those who are in Christ Jesus, no matter what we do, no matter how heinous the sin may be, that God never looks at us and treats us as our sins deserve because he's already treated Christ 
Christ as our sins deserve. He is the great substitute. His suffering is not only an example for us, but his suffering for us is the very means of how we, one, come to know God and the very means of how we, too, can endure suffering. Because Jesus suffered with us. And here's another thing that, that, that Peter continues to say about this good gospel truth of remember, remembering Christ's suffering. It says that being put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. It's speaking of Jesus' death and how Jesus died on the cross. And that, that wasn't it. But Jesus was in the tomb for three days. And Jesus raised from the tomb. And so that now there's victory in Christ Jesus. And since he is our vicarious savior and we live through him, that everything that is true of him is now applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that if Christ endured this world in doing good, and even though he suffered, even to the point of death, even if that happens to us, we may not experience the victory here, but the victory is ours because Christ is our redeemer and Christ sits at the right hand of God. And so the way that Peter encourages us is constantly by looking to Jesus and remembering his suffering and knowing Jesus died. And God raised him. We can, the same way that when Jesus went to the cross, he entrusted his entire life into the hands of the Father that the Spirit would raise him. Now we, by faith and looking to Jesus, can say we can entrust our entire life to him. No matter the scoffing, no matter the rejection, and trust that God himself will raise us victorious, victoriously. Amen? That, that's the truth of the gospel. Peter says, remember the suffering. If you, remember the sufferings of Christ. Not only is this an example, but the power in which you can suffer. And now Peter transitions from talking about remembering the sufferings of Christ to looking at a, at, a, at a scripture or a story in the Old Testament that communicate the patience of Christ. And this is where, this is where the text gets really confusing. So I'm going to spend some time to unpack the different views of how different people interpret it. I'll let you know um, what I think um, for now, and then we'll get back to the text. And so just, just listen to verse 19 and 20. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay. When you read this, when I first read this, I thought, this is ridiculous. I should have Tyler or Jim come teach this passage. And then I'll come back the week after that. And then that didn't work, right? None of them wanted to talk about this. They're cowards, all of them, right? I'm just trying to joke. I love them. I do. Um, here's the three views that we have here. Um, the first view, one, one view we, we just can't accept theologically and biblically. Um, two views um, many Christians hold, and one view I hold. Um, again, no one could be dogmatically about at least two of, them. We, two of these. All of us should be dogmatically at least by the first one. So here's the first one. The first interpretation of this is that after Christ was resurrected, he went to the, the, the prison, the spirit of prison, the, the spirit prison, and there were people who did not believe in God before Jesus came, who rejected faith in God. He gave them a second chance to believe, and now they can leave the spirit prison, which would eventually be hell, and then go to heaven. Um, that's inconsistent with everything that's in the scripture. That, that's inconsistent with everything that the Bible teaches. And some of you may be thinking, well, what about the people in the Old Testament before Christ? How did they have faith? Well, the Bible lets us know that they had faith in the promises of God. They had faith in God. Hebrews chapter 11 explains many of these men and women. One of them, which is Noah, which we'll talk about in a second, that they had faith in God. That those who did not have faith in God, those who did not believe in God, that they were put into, essentially, in the spirit prison, which they would go to hell. And so the thought of Jesus going, offering a second chance, it should not be accepted biblically. So we take that one off and say, so that's not it. 
And then we look at the other two evangelical positions that many, many men and women hold. Um, the, the second one is the view that Jesus died on the cross, was resurrected before he took on his glorified body. That Jesus went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this particular interpretation takes that the spirits that are in prison are not human. Because oftentimes in the Bible, when it says spirits, it's talking about the spiritual realm. And so this could be demons, angels. And so demons are fallen angels. And it says that he goes to them and he proclaims victory. Now, let me back up. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, there were curses given to Adam and given to Eve. And there was also a curse given to the serpent, who is Satan. And the curse that he says in Genesis 3.15 is the very beginning of the gospel message. It says that you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. Getting of a picture that would unfold and how the woman would have a seed. And this particular seed would grow. Satan would try to thwart his plans by thinking he took him out. But ultimately, the, ser- the seed will crush his head. This is a picture of the gospel on the cross. Satan tried to take Jesus out, but this was the very redemptive plan of God. And ultimately, Jesus Christ will crush the head of Satan. So since Jesus, um, excuse me, since the demons and Satan knew this plan, that in Genesis chapter 6, we have this weird interpretation or this weird story about these, these people called the sons of God. And what some people believe who hold this view that Jesus came and taught to the spirits, the fallen demons, was that Genesis 6 were fallen demons who at that time, because they were trying to contaminate the blood of the race that would have this particular seed, essentially the blood of Christ, and they tried to destroy God's plan that during this time that they, they um, cohabitated with women. This is where it gets weird, all right? Cohabitated. They didn't just live together and hang out and go to Starbucks. Um, this is cohabitating, meaning that they, um, well, they... Um, they had babies, right? So you know what you know, right? And so they're saying that the angels, um, these angels had sexual intercourse with these women, and they had these strong men, and they tried to, they, so God brought the flood to wash them out, and then now Jesus is going to them now after his death and resurrection by the Spirit to say, you tried to stop what I was doing, and um, you didn't do it. Um, I don't hold that view. However, there are other pastors on this staff who do hold that view. And the reason why I don't hold that view is that biblically, um, I've never seen anywhere else in scriptures of angels um, having sex with women. Um, One, it's just not biblical. Two, it's weird. And three, it scares me, right? There's just a point there that he goes, I don't see that anywhere else in scripture. The third view, the view of which I hold, is that what Peter is talking about in verse 19, it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey um, when, when God's patient waited in the days of Noah. What he is talking about, he's saying that during the time of Noah, it was Christ preaching through Noah. That, that Christ was speaking through Noah, giving the message of repentance and faith. There is judgment coming. The way that you would be able to be saved from this particular judgment is by entering into this boat. That Christ was giving this message through Noah. And now, because the men, these are humans, did not, the men and women did not believe in the message that Christ was proclaiming through Noah, that they are now, at this present time, in the the prison, they're in the prison, the spirit prison. And that's where they are until they will be in hell. I hold this view because, one, I believe it's in the context of what Peter is talking about. Peter is talking about suffering, and so he gives Noah as an example. Um, I believe it is in the context of the entire letter of Peter, in that Peter... Um, and First Peter talks about how the spirit of Christ was preaching through the prophets. 
Later in 2 Peter, Peter talks about this flood account again, and he talks about Noah in 2 Peter chapter 5, chapter 2, verse 5, that Noah is a herald of righteousness. And so that's why I hold, I hold this view. I hold this view that you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and this seems to make the most sense um, in what Peter is talking about, that Christ spoke through Noah. And so those are the three options. The first one we say, no way, there was no second chance of salvation. Some people would say that he went and proclaimed victory uh, to the demons who tried to throw his plan. Um, I would hold that he's preaching through Noah and the people didn't believe, just like and now as we are witnesses through our obedience of the grace of Jesus Christ through repentance and faith, that those who do not believe in our message ultimately will be judged in the same way that we would have been judged if we have not by faith placed our faith in Jesus. And so now, the patience of Christ. Because what Peter does do now, um, and it, 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 looks, it looks, seems confusing, but what he's trying to do here is say, I gave you the example of Christ. Let me give you the example of Noah. Noah was a faithful man. If you don't know the story of Noah, Noah Noah's story begins in Genesis chapter 6. And, and what happened is now because there's all this wickedness in the world, God says, I'm going to flood this world. I'm going to flood it. Um, And it never rained before. No one had ever seen rain. And then God chose this particular individual named Noah. And he says, Noah, tell everybody about the flood. Tell everybody about the rain. And then build a boat. And and then I'm going to put you on the boat. And I'm going to put a bunch of animals in the boat. And whoever wants to be with you on the ark, um, then then I will rescue you. That was the message that, that you have to do this. And so Noah did it. And just think about this, how this relates to Peter's audience and how it relates to us and the thought of being obedient for a long time, even though that there's social pressure and rejection. Is that Noah was doing something that seemed ridiculous to everybody else around him. It didn't seem real. It didn't seem tangible. They'd never seen it. They, could, they, they, they wanted to see it in the same way that when we do things today, when we say what we believe in, it's weird to people. Um, Noah said, hey, um, I'm going to build a boat. Can you imagine that? For 120 years. That's a long time. Um, I hope I'm not alive. I know I'm not going to be alive for 120 years. I'm just convinced, right? I eat way too bad for that. For 120 years, Noah was just obedient building a boat. And even that is hard for us to understand. But people were saying, what are you building? And he said, I'm building a boat. And they're like, what's a boat? He goes, I don't know. A boat, right? No one one knew what it was. And he goes, it's going to rain. People said, what's rain? He goes, I don't know. Rain. Like this is in peace trying to explain something that only God could reveal to him. In the same way, even though we understand the historicity of Christ, even though we understand the empirical evidence of the resurrection, when you can just step outside of your Christian thinking that's been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, just listen to our message and how confusing it could be. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. Not three gods, one God. But one of, the son came here, but the father wasn't with him. He was fully God and fully man. Okay, just when you try to do the Trinity, that gets confusing, all right? And we get to Jesus, and you say, Jesus, the God-man. Jesus, the God-man, he came into this world um, to die for our sins. And so the person who we follow, he went to the cross, and he died in our sins like a criminal dies. And he was dead for three days, and then he came back to life, and then he floated up into the sky, and then he sent us a spirit, and he says he's going to come back one day. And until then, we're supposed to remember him by eating his body and drinking his blood. Guys, come on. That just seems ridiculous. But when God has revealed it to us, it's the most beautiful truth in the world. When God shows something, when we are able to see that, it is something by an act of God's, God's patience with us. That many of us, we, we didn't become Christians until we were adults. We lived our entire life hearing about Jesus dying on the cross. Some of us, like myself, you grew up going to church and you heard the message of the cross over and over again. And you sang songs and you went to schools and you went to VBS. And you go, I still don't get it. 
And then at one moment, at one time, God took the spirit of Christ and he said, oh, I get it now. My chains fell off. My heart was set free. I rose went forth to follow thee. I love him. He's done everything he can do for me. How could, how could I ever reject this? This is beautiful truth. Yeah, it's crazy. And people around us are going to think it's crazy. And people are going to go, you, I'm glad that works for you. That's just the kind of culture we live in. That, no, no, no is an example for that. And we see God's patient during the time of judgment, the same way that God is being patient with many of you here who've never believed in that message. That the patience of God is meant to lead you towards repentance. In Noah's time, it was 120 years that he gave people the opportunity to repent and believe. 120 years that they would listen to Noah, Noah continually being obedient there as an example for us. And just imagine that. That had to be hard for Noah. Because Noah was human. Noah's not Jesus. He's like you and I. He has his faults. And I guarantee you, because he's like you and I, he, he had his doubts. But there was moments and times where Noah, as he's building his boat, thought, gosh, maybe, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. The Bible doesn't let us know that God kept coming back to him and telling him and telling him. It just, he just kept, he's just faithful. He's just faithful. He's like, oh, I'm supposed to do this. Ridicule. Day after day, people are saying, what are you doing? Maybe there was moments he had doubts. In the same way in our own life that we have doubts. Every single Christian in this room, you'd be lying to yourself and to others around you if you never had doubts about your faith. If there, if there wasn't something in your life that when you, that you left because of Jesus or you lost because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, that sometimes you don't look in the rearview mirror of your life and look and go, gosh, I, was that the best decision? I kind of missed that. So sometimes it's good things. Sometimes it's good people. But you know that is not something where God has called you to be. Sometimes it's just, just it's temptation. That, 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 that's what happens in the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian is long obedience. It's not just making a decision to walk down an aisle and believe in Jesus Christ. It's long obedience. And we see Christ is patient. And he's not just patient with those who do not believe. But as those of us who are Christians, we know he's very patient with us. God is constantly working on us. There are things in our life that we wish that, that we would be better at. We, were, we hope that there's, there's things that God would work on. There's things in my life I would say, Lord, if you took these three things away from me, I would be the best Christian in the world. I really would. And, and it seems like those things are the same things that I wrestle with over and over and over again. And in my weakest moments, just like yourself and just like Noah, there are moments when I look back and go, gosh, was this, was this worth it? And that's exactly what's happened to Noah, that was happening to First Peter and his audience, and that happens to us. And Peter is saying, that's what suffering does. Su- suffering in some ways, it exposes how weak our faith is, only to strengthen it. Suffering in many ways, when we do right, makes us even more, con- more convinced of that truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he shows Noah, Noah himself, he was just a minority group of people, him and seven other people, no one else believed, just like us, just like Peter's audience, that this world is not a Christian world, our country is not a Christian country. Um, And Noah himself was called to do something bizarre and believe in it in the same way that we're called to believe in Jesus and to live a life of obedience that expresses our faith that we have in Jesus and that God himself was bringing judgment and he was to bear witness of that judgment through his actions in the same ways that we are to bear witness of the judgment of Jesus Christ through our words, but particularly here through our actions, the way that we live. And so there's anything that we learn so far from Peter and the way he's encouraging his, his, his readers and his audience, the way that he encourages us is there's one thing. If you look at the life of Jesus and you look at the life of Noah, two things were, cons- or one thing was consistent in both their life, obedience. God calls his people to obey God demands obedience from his people. And the obedience that he demands is the obedience that comes straight out of the Bible. Look at me. Some of you are playing with God. You play with him. 
Meaning, you don't let um, the scriptures dictate by the gospel how you should live. You let the culture around you, the people around you, the circumstances you find yourself in, your feelings dictate what you think scripture says. There are plenty of people who are looking at the Bible and saying, well, that's what it meant then, but does it mean that now? Absolutely. This is God's unchangeable truth. So if God says it's sin, it's always sin. If God said it's right, it is always right. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to live that life out. As Christians, we are marked by obedience, by doing exactly what it is that God calls us to do. And not just in the moment, but for entire life. And the same way that Jesus submitted to the Father, and the same way that Noah believed in God, and it was accounted to him as being righteous, that he, that he followed God. But some of you, some of us, some of you, the reason why this particular suffering of, of remembering Christ's suffering and looking at the patience of Christ. This, this suffering could be avoided. You can't avoid some of the other sufferings. You can avoid this one. And the reason why you can avoid it is you can just not obey. And, and some of us have been there. There have been moments where there have been clear situations where we could witness Jesus. And not just evangelism, but the way our actions are. But we find ourselves, again, being like the chameleon. And we just become like the people around us. There's absolutely no witness to Jesus. Many of you, is because you don't want to give up your comfort that somehow we thought that Christianity, believe in Jesus Christ, that God has called us to comfort. No, no, no. The comfort that God calls us in when you read through the scriptures is that he is, a, he is a comforter. And he sent us a comforter. And it's the Holy Spirit. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus. And when we look at the life of Jesus, the man in whom we follow, the God-man, we see comfort was not what he lived in. But he gave everything. He risked the comforts of heaven in order to sacrifice himself. So now that we understand that we have the comforts of heaven, it's already ours in Christ Jesus. It's not anything he's going to take away. Now we can risk the rest of our lives. We can suffer loss in order to love God and disturb those around us. But some of us are not willing to give up those comforts. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's friends. Whatever it may be, we're not willing to get rid of it. And then some of it, it's just the approval of people. Flat out, it is approval of people. It cripples us. It cripples us. That we are willing in any given moment to, to, to look at God and say, I'm willing to disobey you so that I may not lose the approval of these particular people around me. I'm, I'm willing to dis, dis, disobey, just flat out disobey you in order that I may gain the approval of these men and women around me, God. I, I, they're, they're your God. And then some of you say when you hear that God demands obedience and that he demands righteous obedience, and that he demands perfect obedience, that he, he looks at the imperative of the scriptures and say, this is what you are to do, this is what I'm calling my people to do. You look at that and you go, gosh, I never even read the whole Bible, but I know it's a lot. And if God demands perfect obedience, perfect obedience, then I'll never be acceptable to God. There's nothing that I'll ever, I cannot obey that good. And you're right. If God demands perfect obedience for you to be accepted before him, there's not a man, there's not a woman in this room that will ever be acceptable to God. If Peter is encouraging his audience to obey in order that they may be accepted to, for, before God, if Peter is encouraging his audience to obey and through their obedience they have the victory of God, we're all hopeless because every single one of us have tried to obey and we failed. Um, every single one of us have tried to do exactly what God's, God's called us to do and we failed. That's not what Peter is saying. You see, when Peter points to Noah, there's something we need to understand about Noah. Noah was able to do what Noah was able to do, not just because of the future sufferings of Christ, and not just because of the patience of Christ, but because of the grace of Christ. When we read about Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, the word says that Noah found favor before God. That word favor there, it's in, the, in the Greek, that's where we get our word grace, God's undeserved gift. 
And I would say it's sovereign, meaning God is completely in control of it. And grace in itself is not just something that draws you near to the Lord, but it's God's grace and his favor on his people that allows them and enables them and empowers them to do exactly what God's called you to do. Sometimes Christians, we need to understand, those of us in Christ in this room, we are not without power. That if God calls us to do something, he supplies by his grace the Holy Spirit for us to do it. Here's what I mean. Noah was going to build that ark. And that ark was going to be built. And the people who God wanted to rescue, they were going to be rescued. Because God did not leave it in the hands of Noah. Though Noah did obey, he did listen to what God said, but it was up to God. Because it's his grace. It's in his hands. God just doesn't give his grace out there to save people and redeem people so that people would not do what God's called them to do. But eventually God's plan is going to work out. That's the best news we we can hear. Because though we struggle in our witness, though we struggle in our obedience, what we know, we too, by, by faith, have been called by the grace of God. That the grace of God has called us to, to himself, that we may know God, and that the grace of God is the thing that it is sustaining our obedience, that is sustaining our growth, and, growth, and it's the grace of God by the Holy Spirit that is making us more and more like Christ. Obedience always precedes our understanding of grace. Uh, understanding God, um, the way that we know God is by grace. And so the way that we obey, it's an outward expression of a thank you towards God. It's an outward expression of a transformed heart. And, and, and Noah communicates that here in talking about the grace of God by communicating baptism. Noah. Peter communicates this in talking about baptism. Verse 21, it says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal of God for the good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying the same way that the eight people on the boat were saved. The judgment came down. Judgment came, and yet they were saved because of the boat. They were saved. God provided a way. Um, God saved them, and his means was a boat. And Peter was saying in the same way, baptism is like that, and baptism saved you. Now, hear me. He's not saying baptism saves you and makes you right before God. He says, not as the removal of dirt, but as a good conscience before God. Because baptism is an outward expression of what God has done. But it symbolizes that you, you made a conscious decision. You made a pledge. You see, baptism in the first century was serious. That people didn't wait after they were Christians for 15, 30 years until they can um, be able to articulate their faith well. The one thing about baptism is why we've gotten away from um, the articulation of the faith is we're realizing most people are like theologians by the time that they get baptized. It's like, yeah, I knew the Lord in the verse 33, 30, 30, uh, James said this. And how do you know James? I thought you just got saved, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a sense where when they became Christians, they got baptized. And it symbolized, I am dying to my old self and I do not belong to myself anymore. But in life and in death, I belong to the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm raised up, cleansing of the water, representing that my sins are forgiven, that I am a new person. My obedience flows from who I am in Christ Jesus. My obedience flows because Christ suffered and he's brought me to God. My obedience flows from the fact that God was patient with me in Christ. And did he, not, he did not allow me to suffer judgment, but he took my judgment on my behalf. And my obedience flows from the fact that I've been cleansed. I've been cleansed, washed. And now I can live out a life, a long life of obedience by remembering Jesus, by understanding his suffering, by remembering his patience. And by, by abiding in his grace. And now the victory of Christ is applied to us. The victory of Christ is applied to us not by what we are able to accomplish, by understanding what Christ has already accomplished. Peter closes up this section in verse 22. 
talking about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. It says, who, now Jesus, through his resurrection, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. The final encouragement for Peter's readers and for us is that no matter what may come our way, Peter says that Jesus now has been resurrected now and sits at the right hand of God and that there's nothing in this world can thwart the plan of God in our life because of his sovereign grace upon us, that God himself is not going to let anyone pluck us from him, that God himself is not going to let any suffering take us away from him. It may rattle us. It may give us doubts for a second. Satan could scare us. He could even kill us. But the victory that we have is in Christ Jesus. Let, let me close with this, with the parallel verse of what Paul talks about and speaking about the victory of Christ when it applies to us. And there's what he says. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The attitude that we should have and the commitment we should have as believers is trusting, one, God did not call us to a life of comfort, but in Christ Jesus, he calls us to a life of faithfulness that expresses itself through obedience. We remember Jesus' suffering. We trust in his patience as we proclaim the victory of Christ to those around us, and the, way we, the means of which we draw our strength to obey is always from his grace. Amen? Let's pray.